0: The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer.
1: Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation with another trailblazing innovator. We're going to get right to it. Today, we're rejoined by Jonathan Wick. Principal at TransUnion Healthcare, and author of Healthcare Revolution, The Patient is a New Payer. Jonathan, welcome back to the show.
0: Thanks for having me, Joe. Always a fun time.
1: Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming back. I shared with you just a second ago that I regularly refer to your book, and your podcast last year was actually very, very popular. It was our fifth most popular podcast of 2017 because we have such great things to discuss. I know we're going to have such great things again today. But before we do that, could you take a few minutes and remind the audience about you and your background?
0: Sure. Jonathan Wick. I'm the principal of healthcare strategy at TransUnion. I come from the healthcare space. I've been working in the field about 25 years now. I actually started pushing wheelchairs around a hospital as a transporter for a little over seven bucks an hour, (laughs) and then worked my way up through the finance side of healthcare, got a master's in business and in in healthcare administration, and became a chief revenue officer after about 15, 16 years of various roles as operations manager, patient access directors, really on the finance side, and then decided to get into consulting, and TransUnion uh, Healthcare scooped me up. And I've been here for about three years, and my role at TransUnion really is more of a thought leader and a consultant to the business externally and internally, both interfacing just with the market and then with the business leaders on our side here to help align things from a strategy standpoint. As you know, Joe, things are pretty chaotic in healthcare right now, and TransUnion Healthcare is really trying to help providers protect that revenue wherever they can with solutions and tools and thought leadership and also speak with the providers about what they can do with what they have because resources are pretty scarce there as well. And that's been a fun job, but that's a little bit about me.
1: Great. Well, that's a great start for the next question, Jonathan. Could you give our audience a 10,000-foot overview of how you guys serve your customers at TransUnion Healthcare?
0: You bet. TransUnion has a suite of healthcare revenue protection solutions. It's kind of in three pillars. We really talk about engaging patients early, ensuring earned revenue gets paid, and optimizing collective strategies. I won't get into too much detail on those things, but what TransUnion Healthcare really is doing is helping hospitals combat uncompensated care, and our business partners help hospitals and providers really with engaging the patient, making sure they're getting paid properly from a payer or the patient, and then charity care and financial assistance and things are there, and finding coverage for patients that the providers may or may not know about through insurance discovery. Really engaging patients early is kind of the front end of the revenue cycle. That's having these conversations that you and I are going to have to talk about, about coverage and costs, and all the rules that are out there from a charity or a coverage or a payment standpoint. And then ensuring that revenue gets paid. Sometimes payment means charity, which is great, right? That's what not-for-profits are there for. And and even in the for-profit space, they need to have some sort of margin to allow their operations to go both from provider and patient. And then finally, in the back, optimizing those collections, providers and our business partners, all of us are at a level of finite resources, be it how we're funded or how we're operating and adding capital either in cash or personnel has an indirect cost and opportunity cost, and being efficient, automating things where we can. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that in the future. I think I, that's, that's where revenue cycle is really going, is automating things. We're trying at TransUnion Healthcare to really streamline those collection processes and identifying those coverage opportunities that are there to really maximize revenue for hospitals and healthcare and our business partners are trying to stratify their portfolios and their business offerings as well. So that's really where TransUnion is playing, and I think we're doing a pretty good job at it. We're growing like crazy, and we're really happy to help providers. We've demonstrated $4.4 billion with a B, dollars and identified dollars to our provider community, um, which I think is great. I think every dollar we identify allows them to treat someone who doesn't have one, right?
1: (laughs) That's right. um,
0: We're strongly positioned in that space, specifically in post-discharge revenue recovery and are really working hard to help hospitals have a healthier bottom line and really protect their revenue wherever they can.
1: Jonathan, it was about last year this time when we spoke about your book, you were about to release it, and the one thing I really enjoyed about your book is all the great data and observational data you had on the market. What has changed in the last year since we talked about the release of the book?
0: Yeah, I think we've seen uncompensated care tick up. We had a press release that I could get to you as well that we released here at AFMA Annual a couple weeks ago, out in June, out in Vegas. But there's some stats in there that we can go over. But uncompensated care is something that the American Hospital Association watches very closely, and they release a report every December that looks at the last year in arrears. So it's a 2017 release for the 2016 year. And uncompensated care is a combination of something called bad debt and charity, Bad debt is stuff that didn't get paid that possibly could have either by the patient or the payer. And then charity are things that didn't have an ability to pay that ended up being coded as such through documentation that the patient was in a financial position to unfund their bills. That went up for the first time in three years in 2016, which I think is very important and compelling. It had been going down since things like the ACA and the ACA plans that were offered through the exchange. And I can get you a graph that looks at that, but it went up for the first time by $2.6 billion in 2016. And that's a lot. And I don't think, unless you do, Joe, we're going to see that number go down. (laughs) And so the fact that it's gone back up is that we've seen a temporary relief by getting more folks on Medicaid, possibly the exchange plans. But as you're hearing, both legislatively and in the market, those things have been band-aids, I think, in terms of just an overall issue of funding our health care and getting access to it. But we still need to address those things like cost our coverage provisions as a nation, and all of that. And, and we're starting to see kind of the seams start to stretch, almost bust in certain places to the tune of $2.6 billion. The AHA recognized that in that report.
1: Wow. Jonathan, are providers making any significant progress in addressing the realities that you brought out in your book last year?
0: I believe they are. I think healthcare care is interesting, right? It's a laggard, certainly, technologically. If you look at other industries, the book talks about that, retail, airlines, banking, I think the millennials too are an interesting breed because they're kind of trying to get everything through mobile phone that they can. My wife even told me, Joe, that you can order your groceries online now, which I found fascinating. There's a commercial that I saw on TV yesterday <laughs> that had a guy in his robe who went and got breakfast for his wife, That's <laughs> and awesome. drove right up, and popped his hood and, and shook the guy's hand and drove back and made waffles for his wife in bed. You know, <laughs> um, That's awesome. so I, I think healthcare has challenges with that, right? Understanding these forces of consumerism. Transparency. I would offer retail medicine in the noise of mergers and acquisitions. I would argue a dilution of outpatient sustainability in the hospital market. You're seeing much more competition there. Consumers are really starting to drive what's called the patient experience, and they have choices now. And I think what I've seen the providers do is really recognize that in the last year from when the book came out, they realized that, whoa, hey, I don't have a guaranteed revenue stream from my patients into the next year or so. These guys may go to a retail clinic, or they may go to a different facility or a freestanding facility for a lot of their care, which often subsidizes things like the emergency room or the inpatient things, these outpatient diagnostic studies or cardiac cath labs or the freestanding labs and things. Those are things that hospitals use to help keep their revenue and profitability in a standard that needs to be there, where they're seeing that kind of become detriment. And I would argue it's been chipped away by just the increased competition. And, and I can't fault the market for that. I think that's the American way, right? We're a very capitalistic country, and I think that helps the consumer, but it certainly has put providers on their heels, and they're starting to realize that they've got to provide an experience that is really creating things like loyalty and trust with their consumer, and the first thing to break those is when finances or coverage or payments start to get askew, and patients start to make a choice going, hey, I ain't going there, they screwed up my bill last time, (laughs) or they told me one number and it's a different one now, or I couldn't get the appointment when I wanted it. All those things are certainly choices that we make when we're going to a restaurant or a mechanic or a bank or an airline, any of those things happen we're like, well, hey, I'm a consumer. I got choices. I'm going to go somewhere else. And the providers have realized that and are really starting to firm up their relationship to the retail market. And I'm even hearing patients being called consumers now, not patients, as interesting as that sounds. But that's what I'm seeing happen as kind of a driving force lately.
1: Yeah, and a great example of that, Jonathan, I told my primary care physician at the end of 2016 that if he did not implement telemedicine in 2017, I was going to fire him. Yep, And he just kind of laughed at me and looked at me like, we live in Alabama, dude. It's not going to happen. And I said, that's fine. I'll just get my care somewhere else. And probably not because of him. There's not a lot of competition here in South Alabama, so the other health systems aren't pushing telemedicine either. But there are lots of markets where telemedicine is throughout the market in the big cities. And Consumers are getting much better care. They don't have to sit in waiting rooms. They don't have to sit with sick patients, yada, yada. All the consumerism realities and benefits of telemedicine are really coming to fruition, at least in the bigger and more competitive cities. So that's a great example on the non-financial side. And I've had no problem finding online physicians to replace my primary care physician. So maybe I'm a little forward thinking. I don't think so but more and more consumers, especially the millennials, are going to be thinking like me, I believe.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the market's moving towards telemedicine-type delivery, and you can't fix all things through the phone. We know that just by our utility bills and and when we go buy a car and such. But but I think that you're going to certainly see a drift and a transition to things that can be will be there. So things like payment, to your point, primary care visits, I would argue some of the diagnostic testings. I mean, imagine instead of going to a lab, a kit gets sent to your house, the catch is done there, and then you send it back. I've seen telemedicine in, in the emergency rooms have neurologists for stroke that are in another state diagnosing the patient right then and there. There's caregivers at their side, but I think you're going to start seeing a lot more of that because that's what consumers and patients want. They want their health care right now, right away, my way. They want to pay for it, access it in the most technologically advanced way, like they're getting it in any other transaction that they're making outside of healthcare, And you're going to see that continue to grow.
1: Jonathan, you guys came out with new analysis that shows that patient balances after insurance are continuing to increase in 2018, driving bad debt and uncompensated care. What are the challenges and the risks here?
0: Yeah, so PBAI, we call it, or patient balance after insurance, something we watch very closely. The nice thing about TransUnion Healthcare is that we're part of a larger global data risk and data provider, TransUnion as a whole, and that's awesome, right? Because we're able to look at healthcare a little bit differently by leveraging our data assets, which is really, really fun. And one of the reasons I actually enjoy my job and came to TransUnion, is just fascinating the things that are possible through the power of data and providing those risk insights. The study that we did, we looked at, how patients' estimates came out when their care happened, and we trended that over time. We also looked at how insurance claims are being adjudicated, which is a fancy word for basically being discounted for the contractual rates that the insurance is in place. And then also, you know, if there was an insurance there, how self-pay and the government plans paid their part or not, and then which portion of that was insurance and which portion of that was the patient balance. And we really kind of broke it out into those different fields. Overall, the patient balance after insurance, and this isn't a shock, Joe, went up about four points from 2012 to 2017. So it went from 8% to 12%. And that's pretty compelling, right? So in the next five years, so by 2027, when, when you and I are talking, and I'm sure we will be, you know, that number will be in the neighborhood of 16% or maybe 20% because I think the slope's a little higher than just a standard point or three quarters of a point per year as we're seeing just costs increase and the patient sharing increase. And what that means is, is that, commercially insured patients had an increase of 450 bucks to about almost $800. And we saw that increase also in Medicare. As these cost-sharing pieces become more and more large for patients, they are looking for ways to afford these bills as they occur. And I think that's where there's large gaps in the delivery, right? Healthcare is very, very good at Treating a patient, identifying a patient, and getting them better, we've done a good job of that and actually getting them coverage, be it through the government programs, their employer, or even through charity. Where we haven't done well is understanding how that care is going to be funded, even over time. So you're starting to see banks and banking-type transactions really start to infiltrate the provider market. And what I'm seeing recently is it's no longer about collecting a copay. It's about financing your care over time because these amounts, as they became larger, have outgrown the liquidity of people's bank accounts. The Federal Reserve also does a study, which I track very closely, that says that people have to borrow beyond $400. And so $400 is the average amount that people have that they can cover for, quote, emergency expenses. So your radiator, your tires on your car, maybe an unexpected thing going out like a furnace or something like that. Well, care's in that bucket too. Well, working in the industry, $400 is really a sneeze in a hospital. It doesn't take you very long to get there. And so, People have to hypothetically borrow against that. In the book, there's a grid in there in the middle that I had kind of had some fun looking at what are the average costs for things like a doctor's visit or a CAT scan or CT scans, or maybe a, an appendectomy or, or even a, a childbirth or a hip replacement. And that $400 goes very, very, very short. It doesn't have that long of a runway when it comes to funding your health care. And so what that means is that people are having to borrow or the hospital is having to float those amounts over time. And so it's no longer about collecting those copays. It really is about financing care and navigating that. And I think providers that do that well and leverage tools like TransUnion Healthcare has or really engage that patient early and understand what those funding mechanisms are from the patient – or the payer, and are really looking at ways to look at that post-discharge revenue and making themselves whole by protecting their revenue are going to do better. I attend a lot of shows, and I'm in the market a lot, and what I see is hospitals are either dying on the vine or growing, and the ones that are growing have really holistically looked at this and said, hey, how are we going to protect our revenue over time, and how are we going to have a patient navigate that, and how are we going to have a payer navigate that? And they've got very firm strategies in place in terms of protecting that revenue and making sure they're getting paid properly and assuring their revenue over time. And I think that's what's changing, and that's what this report talked about, was from a patient balance after insurance perspective.
1: Jonathan, what are some ways that you're helping providers, TransUnion Healthcare is helping providers to combat this problem?
0: Well, you know, I'll go back to our three pillars. I think we really want them to engage their patients early and make sure that their staff are empowered to do so. You know, by that, that's making sure there's insurance in place. There's estimates in place so they know what these costs are and what the risks are. There's coverage in place. Just because you have insurance, you know that all too well, Joe, with your experience with your mother and yourself personally. Just because there's insurance doesn't mean it's covered or affordable. And so those types of things are things that we really help providers understand from a patient perspective, what's the likelihood of payment? What's the likelihood of coverage? Are authorizations and medical necessity things being met? Is the coverage effective? Is the payment something that the patient can afford or not? Or do they need some financing options over time? We work with partners on that. On the payer side, ensuring that revenue gets paid, did the payer pay the way that they should have? Medicare is a great example of that. Medicare is the largest payer in the world. I would argue they pay their bills pretty well, But they know what they know, and there's things they may or may not know. The patient was discharged to a skilled nursing facility, but the patient didn't go there and went home. Medicare assumes that the skilled nursing facility should get some money and the hospital should get some money. That's how they get paid. A lot of people don't know that. the patient actually went home and instead didn't go to the skilled nursing. Um, This is a very finite example. There's money that's actually owed to the hospital because of that, and TransUnion has tools to look at those types of things. Really interesting thing, Joe. You'll get a kick out of this. Medicare has a rebate program for patients who can't afford their co-pays. A lot of people don't know that. It's called the Medicare Bad Debt Program. We just recently acquired a company called Healthcare Payment Solutions, which really looks at and helps a hospital record how many Medicare beneficiaries paid their co-pays, co-insurance deductibles or not. And if they did not pay their co-pays and co-insurance deductibles, and the hospital attempted collections upon those, this company runs a report. They provide it back to the hospital and say, hey, here's $100,000 or a million dollars, whatever it might be, of payments that Medicare actually can pay you back once you submit these forms. It's not one-to-one. It's, I think the rate right now is about 65 cents on the dollar, but at least it's something, right, to get revenue back to you to make you whole because the payer certainly isn't going to pay that back. Medicare is unique in that, that they have a program that pays $0.65 on the dollar, but that company helps a hospital identify those dollars and get the funding back to them, where otherwise it just would have ended up being in that bad debt bucket that we talked about. Those are just a couple examples of how we're helping, but we're constantly trying to innovate others and really help providers protect their revenue wherever they can.
1: Perfect. Thank you for that. Jonathan, what can consumers do to cope?
0: I think they need to wake up. The book talks about that a little bit, too. When I speak publicly, and I kind of start to shock and awe the crowd. One of the things I start with is, if you're upset about your health care costs, it's all your fault. And I point at the audience. And it really is because we, as the book talked about, have became an entitled society to some extent. And I'm not saying that to blame. I'm saying it for awareness. We accepted, most of us, our bills that came in the mail. We saw that big, scary number at the top, right, that said, ooh, $10,000. And then we saw another number that maybe was a little bit less. And then we saw a number at the bottom that we owed nothing or a very small amount, but we didn't react necessarily or inquire about that top number if we had someone else paying for it, be the government on Medicare or Medicaid, a charity program perhaps, or even your insurance company that you're commercially insured through. Those numbers all inflated dramatically over the last 20 years. Inflationary rates are insane. I I talk about eggs in the book, and how a dozen eggs would be $48 today, no one would pay that because we didn't. (laughs) And because we haven't, we've seen this inflation in cost and now we're like, what happened? Well, that's what happened. And so consumers need to be very, very engaged in these things like transparency and consumerism and retail and ask lots of questions look up doctors. You know this all too well, Joe, with your mom. I'm sure you guys looked at where your options were, which quality outcomes were there, what was affordable, what did your coverage have, what were options beyond your coverage for payment, be them in affordability for charity or payment plans over time. From an access standpoint, which was the easiest for you, getting care from home, from a telemedicine type model, or going to a clinic that's freestanding that's not part of a hospital, or going to a hospital and getting it, whatever those things are, Those questions often aren't asked until the envelope and the bill comes in the mail. Another startling statistic, and I'm working on this one, so I may have to validate it with you later, but every person I ask and encounter, I know one in four patients have a bill at home of some sort. One in five are paying it over time, and one in 10 will never pay it at all, and I can give you those statistics, but I think those numbers are deflated because When I ask someone, and I'll even ask you, Joe, you have a bill at home right now. I guarantee you you do. It's on your counter. It doesn't matter what it is or where it is, but it's a bill, and you owe it. Every person I've asked so far, and I talk to a lot of people, probably thousands a year, have said yes to that question. That means, I don't know what the population of the U.S. is right now, but it's pretty high. That means there's billions (laughs) of unpaid claims on everyone's kitchen counter at home right now, right? And the reason they're unpaid is threefold. One, they're confusing, and we want to make sure it's right before we pay it. Two, we didn't really know about it before it happened, and so now that it's come, we're like, ooh, well, I'll pay that when I have time, and I've told you this before, medical bills rank around seven behind your mortgage, your groceries, your phone bill, and things like that. And three... You're hoping that the number will get lower with each letter that comes in the mail. <laughs> so as a consumer, you're going to wait until it has the big red font on it that says, hey, we're going to take something away valuable or no, we really mean it this time. But that's kind of scary when you think about it that way that, I mean, I've got a bill and I'm in the industry. I've got a bill sitting at home now and I'll pay it and I'll pay it when it comes. But it's, it's interesting, I think, that every citizen has some sort of bill like that home that they're sitting on. Just because of how we have structured the billing and payment cycle, it really is scary if you think about it, that that tsunami of envelopes is sitting out there from an accounts receivable standpoint. That's compelling to me.
1: Jonathan, what have I missed? What is top of mind at TransUnion and the providers you serve that we haven't talked about today?
0: I think that it really is that we're kind of at an event horizon. in Next year when we talk Joe, what will we be talking about? Will we be talking about the same thing and wondering when the bubble's going to pop? Or will we be talking about the innovations in voice and telemedicine and your, hey, Alexa, or your, hey, Siri, or your, hey, Google, where can I get an appointment today? How can I pay my bill? Can I set up a profile with my Visa card or my health savings account? Can I go to a transunion healthcare patient-facing portal and see what my estimates are and shop that way? How can we engage patients to go shop? Those are types of things that I think The market needs to move to because we've done that with airlines and banking and with groceries, as I've talked about. You could go online and shop for your eggs and have them delivered to the front of the store, and you could pull up and honk your horn, and they'll throw them in your trunk, just like I saw in a commercial yesterday. I don't think healthcare will be as simple as eggs are, but the payment and access to them could be. And I think that's what we're missing, and that's what the market really needs to look at holistically, because that's what consumers, especially that millennial generation, and they may not get all the way there, but they're going to want to look at the health systems and business partners that have made those steps versus the ones that haven't, and they'll start choosing those things over distance. I think you might see patients start doing medical tourism and starting to go to places where the access, payment, and quality are measurable, available and easier to see from a transparent standpoint than the others, and they'll make choices in that. And I think that's what TransUnion Healthcare is really positioned well to help providers understand, and we're excited about the future of healthcare.
1: All right. For those of you, if you have not already done so, go to Amazon or your favorite bookstore and order Jonathan's book, Healthcare Revolution, The Patient is the New Payer. I guarantee there will be data in there that shocks you, changes your not only attitudes and opinions, but changes the actions and how you're managing at least your family's health care. Jonathan, it was so great to have you on the show once again. Thanks for stopping by and sharing your great insights again. Always a pleasure, Joe. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. And that wraps this broadcast. On behalf of our guest, Jonathan Wick, I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare.